Welcome to the 376th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Brianne Bennis, host of the No End in Sight podcast. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 15th, 2021, there are 5,105,496 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Community Grieves Loss of Dr. Neil Spector. Appeared on LymeDisease.org and was written by Dorothy Kupcha Leland. Appeared June 19th, 2020. Hmm. Dr. Neil Spector died Sunday, June 14th, 2020. Shortly after the news was spreading like wildfire throughout the Lyme disease community, tributes poured in from literally around the globe. Neil Spector held a unique place in the Lyme world. I first encountered him, this is the author Dorothy Kupcha Leland, first encountered him when I read his then newly published book, Gone in a Heartbeat, A Physician's Search for True Healing. In it, this world-class cancer researcher told how, out of the blue, he began to have heart-related symptoms. But the top doctors he consulted chalked it all up to stress, merely suggesting that he learned to relax more. Heart problems continued in time leading to the point where he needed a pacemaker and then an internal defibrillator. On his own, he finally figured out that his heart problems were rooted in Lyme disease, but he lived in Florida at the time, and the prevailing medical wisdom was that he couldn't possibly have Lyme disease in Florida. Thus, he had to turn elsewhere for official diagnosis and treatment. What we now call misdiagnosis by geography. Unfortunately, still a huge problem throughout the country. Although Specter eventually did receive treatment for Lyme, it was too little too late. By then, the damage to his heart was so great one Friday, his doctor told him he'd be dead by Monday without a heart transplant. Luckily, a donor was found. He received a new heart and lived to write a memoir about the experience. Bond in a heartbeat was a remarkable contribution on its own, but that was only the beginning of what Spectre brought to our community on so many levels. He thoroughly understood many viewpoints, those of the patient, the doctor, the medical researcher. And he wielded those perspectives to advocate for a new kind of research for Lyme disease. Soon, he became a highly sought speaker at scientific and medical conferences and also willingly addressed patient-oriented events as well. Duffin said he wanted to bring Lyme disease treatment into the 21st century. Professionally, he marshaled his considerable expertise from the world of cancer treatment, which has made huge strides in recent years. Then he sought to apply those lessons to the treatment of tick-borne diseases. At the time of his death, he and his team at North Carolina's Duke University were deeply engaged in cutting-edge Lyme research. Outside of the public eye, Specter corresponded with countless individual Lyme patients who reached out to him via email and social media. 
Many of their heartfelt remembrances have been posted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Many specifically mentioned how kind he was, offering information and moral support when they needed it most. In recent months, and again, this was published in 2020, Spectre was quite ill and was hospitalized for suspected COVID-19. In April of 2020, he posted on Instagram that he had returned home from the hospital, and though his COVID test was negative, he had other major issues to deal with. His last Facebook post was on June 4th, 2020, 10 days before his death. At that time, he wrote, asking for your prayers as I face the greatest challenge of my life. His official obituary published in North Carolina stated, quote, while Neil may not have worn a cape, many would say that he was a superhero and some called him a saint. Thank you, Neil Spector, for inspiring us, educating us, for leading research in new and promising directions, and for being an extraordinary human being. You came into our world when the Lyme community needed you most. May we all carry on the legacy you started of respecting patients and pursuing new ways to treat Lyme disease. Most of all, may we follow your example of treating all with kindness. The world could use a little more of that right now. A tribute to Dr. Neil Spector on LymeDisease.org, published June 2020. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Brianne Bennis. Brianne Bennis is the host of No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness and the creator of the hashtag NEIS Void, an active community hashtag for questions and conversations about life with chronic illness across diagnosis and diagnostic status. Brianne is also co-founder of Stories We Don't Tell, a candid Toronto storytelling event, podcast, and anthology. Brianne holds a postgraduate certificate in media and medicine from Harvard Medical School and a master's degree in architecture from the University of Michigan. Some of her recent work includes her TEDx talk, Disease Begins Before Diagnosis, and a spring 2021 short course at Grinnell College, Personal Storytelling for Social Impact. Brianne Bennis, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Hi, thank you. I'm so glad to be here talking to you. But let me start the way I generally do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Yeah, um, I'm in Western Massachusetts in the United States, so a kind of more rural area. And I guess I would say that the pandemic is pretty stable here. We've definitely had kind of similar spikes to the rest of the country and where we kind of track after whatever's going on in and around Boston. But overall, um, the vaccination rates here are pretty high, and a lot of people are wearing masks still most of the time, which I'm really grateful for. But I would say that I'm still spending a lot of time at home intentionally in isolation right now. Must feel I'm in South Korea right now, which is um, experiencing an increase in infections uh, because they've sort of moved into what they call with corona phase. They're trying to open up. This has happened in mm -hmm. countries that have had low death rates is trying to do mm -hmm. that. Singapore is doing the same. So the numbers are up. And the real test is whether or not people will be in the hospital because the infection rate here, the vaccination rate has been going up mm -hmm. quite a lot too. It, it must feel in the United States, it's multiple countries. I mean, you've got it, Massachusetts, but you've also got Arkansas and Florida. 
It absolutely does. It, And I'm from Canada originally, from Ontario. So I feel like I'm kind of, I've been simultaneously aware of what's happening here in the Northeast, where, I mean, Vermont has really high vaccination rates. We're close I'm very close to the Vermont border. So kind of we have this little bubble of, I would not call it safety, but relative caution. And then other like Florida and my mom's in Arizona and like all of these other places that are just having completely different experiences. It varies county by county and definitely state by state. This is what my friend Malka Older calls Corona lag, that we're Mm -hmm. all like you and I are having this conversation in real time, but outside the window, we're all having a very different reality right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I mean, I haven't done as many interviews for my podcast over the last two years as I had in the previous couple of years, but I've still been speaking to people in other countries. And it's still like, oh, I realize that we're kind of connecting over the idea of living through a pandemic, but the realities of living through a pandemic are really, really different, depending on where people are. Yeah, I like the way you said that sort of connecting over the idea of the pandemic, but the lived reality is so is so distinctive. Could could you share a memory of your time of this pandemic, something that really resonates for you? Yeah, so I feel like I've had kind of two pandemics that I've been living through. So the first year, um, as it turns out, my husband and I were really unlucky in January of 2020. We were traveling back to Toronto or through Toronto. And when we got home from going to Ontario for the holidays, January 2020, we both had a viral infection um, that we don't know what it was or didn't think anything of at the time. And we were both very sick for the first two weeks of January. We had a fever for a week. We had respiratory symptoms for a week. Um, And then we kind of started to recover, although I had just like a lag in symptoms. And again, January 2020, I knew a lot about chronic illness. And I knew that post viral illness was something that I should be worried about. And already from my history, something that I should be worried about, but I wasn't thinking about it outside of myself. So I was resting a lot, etc, etc. And then um, in April, when kind of lockdown measures were really starting, and especially in the US, March to April was when things were really picking up steam here. I actually uh, had an injury because of because of my post-viral problem. And so I ended up spending most of the first year of the pandemic in bed with what was probably a cerebrospinal fluid leak. So I had kind of an inverted pandemic from most other people, I think, since in April and even May, they were starting to adapt workplaces and schools and bring everything online and museums and concerts. And and so within kind of my micro-community, as much as everybody was really worried, and I don't want to understate all of the distress that was happening, people were also feeling a lot of enthusiasm about increased access because of the internet. And so I spent, and again, people who had been bedbound or homebound, or a lot of people in my community. So there are people who lockdown was like nothing to them because they kind of were already living that way. And they were really excited by all of the these new features online. And I was in a place where I couldn't cognitively process media because of my injury. So I had a really different, I mean, I guess I kind of experienced it as a new level of isolation the way that other people did, but it was kind of counter to what I'd expected. Um, And then that began to recover in the fall. And the following spring, we got a puppy. So I spent 2020 completely horizontal, like recovering, not really aware of what was going on. And then I spent the next year, like house training a very small animal, chasing it around. So (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I don't think that any of that was pandemic related, although I guess both of those are sort of like typical. I had a post viral illness problem and then I got a pandemic puppy. Yeah, I. Those are both good stories. I mean, bet the first one's not a bad it's a bad experience, but well told. Right. And um, 
but the giving care this year. So how's the puppy? Is he a dog now, huh? He is. Uh, he's nine months old now. So okay, he a was a yeah, still a puppy. He's getting bigger. He's about to have his first snow, basically. So that's kind of what we're what we're gearing up for. I think it's been very helpful in terms of maintaining like a schedule and kind of a regular feeling sure. life when we're now you know two years into relative isolation and relative not quite having normal anchors in day to day life. Yeah, I we might I agree. hear him. And uh, that's and we have all kinds of visitors on COVID calls, so that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and thanks for sharing the that first year. And I'm really sorry that you went through that and the and the not knowing about COVID mm -hmm. is something I guess a lot of people share. And maybe it's for some people their first time with a brush with an ability to either get clinical certainty on something mm -hmm. or even get into the clinic to to find out i mean again this is an area that your your community is living every day you know but the idea i mean so many people have remarked on this they're like i don't know if i had COVID. i may never know which right. is an authentic and real reaction but it must be one that to you sounds a little bit off key yeah it's i think it's it's like this whole experience has been kind of surreal in terms of the way that people are encountering the matter encountering the medical experience, because there are so many things that were already happening that kind of, I think whenever people heard about them, they, they were like, mm, that's a little bit of an idiosyncrasy, like that doesn't align with my expectations for the medical system. But that must have been a one off problem. You know, like that one person that I knew who reported that they had trouble getting diagnosed with something, getting proper testing done, getting access to proper care, even though they knew what was wrong. Like kind of all of these little things lived more in the realm of anecdote. But they never kind of grew to mean something to anybody. They didn't look like a pattern. And that was definitely one of the things that's happened very quickly is because of the way that COVID has spread and because of the number of people impacted. Yeah, people are very aware of the limitations of clinical medicine, I think. It's not funny, let's, but I already knew. <laughs> let's go back to your, to your time before the pandemic. And mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about the No End In Sight podcast, but even maybe before that, to how you developed your skill as a health narrator, as a, as a storyteller. And even if, if you want to talk a little bit about your own you know, sort of health experience and what, what led to that, it would be really illuminating, I think, for people to hear about that. Yeah, thank you. So I guess I, as you mentioned in my bio, I went to school for architecture, which is definitely one kind of discipline. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but I was chronically ill. So when I left grad school, and architecture is like many professions, kind of, you are embarrassed and you don't like to talk about it. It can be a time that you are sad. It can be kind of anything that falls under this umbrella. Um, and so because we also didn't want to put pressure on people, we ended up writing a lot just to keep the event going. So I think it was during that time that I basically I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself and what I wanted to write about and how to edit my own writing kind of to be comfortable sharing it in this room full of strangers, which can really feel it can really feel nerve wracking, at least the first few times and probably when you haven't done it a while. Um, and so that was how it started. And I still at that time, I really I did not know that I was chronically ill. I and this it turns out this is really common. Um, but because uh, the condition that I have, I was born with, it's genetic. 
And so it kind of phases in and out. It's really dynamic. I had asked doctors before. They never knew anything. So I just was like, well, this is what having a body is like. And during the time that I was working on stories we don't tell, my health did start to deteriorate and deteriorate. And so I was writing about it while it was happening. Um, and ultimately, I left Toronto to kind of try to take a sabbatical to get better, which is another thing that's really common. Um, and that didn't work. I got much sicker. And I, at that time, kind of was looking around going, I, when I was dealing with grief and loss, when I was dealing with trauma, when I was dealing with all of this other stuff, personal essays and memoirs meant everything to me. So getting to have these conversations had been so meaningful in terms of mental health, in terms of whatever, social relations, but I couldn't find the same kind of media about what I felt like I was going through. And I didn't know what I was going through, but about like, my body's falling apart. My doctor doesn't know why they say I'm fine. I'm definitely not fine. Um, And so I started looking for stories like that. And I found that there weren't very many of them. It seemed like a lot of the writing about chronic illness was, I mean, certainly written by people who had been diagnosed, but they also almost erased that time before diagnosis as if like they got diagnosed right away as soon as their symptoms came up. And that was not my experience. Um, And so in 2017, the book Through the Shadowlands by Julie Raymeyer came out and it's about uh, her experience with mold illness. And she was a science reporter. So she was talking about the history of chronic chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis as it is called in the UK and is the preferred name here. That is a whole other story. Um, But so she was writing about that history and the history of mold illness of what we know and kind of the research that she was doing and how she was able to achieve remission through mold avoidance. And that like blew my mind. And so I thought if she's gone through this, I bet other people have gone through this. And so I decided to start collecting stories. And originally it was pretty open-ended. So I just kind of asked, I put a call out on social media, I put it on Facebook, I put it on Reddit and said, like, anybody who has had kind of a weird health situation that you sort of had to take into your own hands, I would love to talk to you about that whole process and your experience with doctors and everything. And then I just kind of started doing that in 2017. And then I started releasing them in 2018. And it's been a process. I feel sometimes I haven't listened to any old episodes in a while, but I think like, I've become a new person over the course of just learning these things because I've learned so much while working on it. But I really feel like I was applying the same kind of stories we don't tell lens to those conversations. Like, what if we talk about it as if we're going to talk about the pieces that we all had in common, but we're not used to vocalizing? Like, how did it actually feel? What were you actually thinking? That kind of thing. So uh, just a quick reminder to everyone, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Brianne Bennis today uh, about the, her No End Insight podcast and anything else we want to talk about. We'll get to COVID in, in a little bit as as well. But um, I want to talk a little bit more about the podcast. And uh, I listened to the to your first episode. People should listen to this podcast. And, and if you don't think chronic illness is something that's uh, connected with your life, you're probably wrong anyway, but but you will still get a lot out of, or I got a lot out of, Brianne, listening to your approach. And we were chatting a little bit before we started about this, and I wondered if you could say a little bit more about how you really learned to, to listen at length. I mean, and I think, you know, this COVID time has been one in which, at least early on, if you were privileged enough not to have to be in the ICU or an essential worker, we had more time uh, together with people where we were locked down 
I think conversation maybe made a bit of a comeback during that time. I don't know. I hope it did. Maybe people thought again about what it meant to talk and to be heard and to listen. And we were just, you know, saying a moment ago about also talking about health a lot and talking about unknowns of health a lot. So it seems like this is a time period in which, first time in my life, um, these kind of extended discussions about health and about health in a way where we cannot reach diagnostic certainty. This is kind of the reality we've been living. Now, you were doing the podcast before COVID, so those are skills you already had. But I wonder if you could just say a little bit. I guess I don't want you to give away the your secret, you know, uh, uh, of, of how you do what you do. But it, I was really struck by the patience in the conversation and also, as you said, just giving people really time to explore everything that they needed to, to say before they knew what their diagnosis was. And then just to go beyond that to say, and that diagnosis was wrong. And mm-hmm. then there's another period of learning. It, it's really phenomenal the way that you unfold the story. Thank you. Yeah, I think so. On the one hand, it was definitely rooted in having done so many workshops that I had kind of, I already had an experience of listening to someone tell the version of a story that they had already planned, basically. So, you know, we did two workshops before each event. So people would usually show up for the first one, either with a draft or they would kind of monologue for five minutes. And then we would have another conversation, which was about like, okay, so that's the version that you started with. But here are some questions that I think here are some larger themes that I think the audience might be wondering about, or they might be connecting to. So we're going to practice talking about that in the workshop format as a way to kind of rethink this, like, what could we layer into this story that would be really helpful for people or thematically connect with something that they might relate to. So try to make these stories kind of as specific, but also as universal as possible. So I think that was one of the things that I started with. But then the other thing that has proved to be really essential to the way that it operates is that I guess when people are living with chronic illness, one of the things that they lose first is their credibility. So people kind of talk over and over again, and I this was my experience too, this is so common, about just not feeling believed before diagnosis, especially, and also sometimes after. So you go to your doctor and you describe what's happening, and the doctor is like, oh, you sound stressed. Have you tried meditating? Have you tried exercise? Have you tried improving your sleep? And, you know, most people, by the time they're seeking help or something like this, have tried everything they can try on their own. Like, this isn't a first, this isn't a first round request. And then when people don't have a diagnosis, they have the same problem everywhere. You have this problem at work if you need accommodations or at school if you need accommodations. You have this problem at home where maybe your family members are starting to think like, if the doctor doesn't think anything is wrong, then nothing's wrong. So why is this person asking lazy, acting lazy or attention seeking or whatever? And so it was a really, it was an important thing for me from the beginning to intentionally believe people. And I think that doesn't, like in isolation, that kind of sounds like, of course, if you're interviewing someone, I mean, maybe you don't believe everything <laughs> that every person says, but like, that's kind of a given in a conversation. But when someone's talking about their health history, and when someone's talking about kind of some of the more out there kind of woo woo things that they tried, because they were desperate, when someone's talking about the weird stuff that helped, because they had no other options, like, we're just really, really used to running into people not believing us. And that shapes the way we talk about it, it shapes the entire conversation. And so That is like the biggest piece outside of kind of having spent a lot of time workshopping stories and thinking about what audiences might be curious about or what they might connect with, which just like 
how would I talk about this if I really wanted to make sure that the person that I'm talking to knows that I believe them, even if what they're saying might appear ridiculous to someone outside of our community. And I think that that's informed a lot of the conversations and a lot of the way that people have kind of related back to me because they're not, and me too, but we're not used to being spoken to that way when we're talking about something that's kind of so far into the realm of the personal and unmapped. I wonder if we can bring that, you know, sort of back to your experience a little bit. There's some moments in your, in the first episode, um, one in particular, you talk about you were having skin irritation and you went to a doctor and you were telling him, but he wasn't listening to your, to what you were telling him. He was watching how you were acting. And I don't want to speak out of turn here. This must be something doctors are trained to do which is that when the patient is in the room relating the history, they're also sort of keying in on physical clues. I don't know if the physical clues are deemed more reliable than the narrative. That might be something we can talk about. But but you were itching. And he said, is it itching that much that you have to scratch all the time? And, and said, yeah. And he said, well, no problem. And he immediately diagnoses you for something that you didn't have, which included a course of treatment, which was highly irritating and ultimately not the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And that it, it happens all the time. And in fact, I do think it's a part of medical training. And it's, it kind of comes out of like, the the history of medicine is that, you know, before mo modern medicine, before we had microscopes and germ theory, it was all observational. And so people were observing and kind of not trusting the patient for maybe a variety of patriarchal reasons. But that definitely lives on into today that the way that doctors are assessing people and you know, like, hashtag not all doctors, of course, there are plenty of great people in the system, but they're still informed by, like, the long history that shaped all of their practices. And that is absolutely one of them that they're meant to observe more. And so if they decide that someone appears not credible for a whole variety of reasons that involve personal biases, you know, like racism is a factor, classism is a factor, sexism is a factor, and more, ageism is a factor, like everything, all of the biases that we already know about are baked into this system as they're baked into all systems. And so what you're saying, if it doesn't align with what the doctor is observing, they're going to go with what they think that they're observing over what you're telling them about your embodied experience. And that is like just an incredibly common complaint and point of frustration for people. And especially, I mean, people don't, People don't go in expecting that. I actually think that's important to say too. So people don't expect that their doctor won't listen. People expect that their doctor will listen. And there's a point of like huge betrayal and a loss of trust just as people start to realize that their doctor is often not hearing their actual kind of concerns or their pain or their frustration at all. Like, well, you look fine, so you must be fine. Have you tried mm -hmm. meditation and exercise? Yeah, <laughs> I, I wonder... You know, too, I mean, this comes back to the pressures of, I'm talking about the United States here. Um, I've experienced something different in South Korea. Um, but the pressures in the United States uh, to see a, a lot of patients, um, time is of the essence, of course. And as you said, and I want to emphasize this, and I've talked to lots of medical health professionals on COVID calls, and um, I'm sure they'll be listening to this because they're interested and they want to, you know, improve their, their skills. So this is not all doctors, but... Um, the pressures, the structural pressures of the system to move people through quickly, militate against this kind of active patient mm -hmm. listening. And I um, have seen a lot of doctors in my life, as most people have as a middle-aged person. Um, my most recent um, sort of general practitioner that I had when I was last living in the United States, he was a big talker. He is a big talker. 
and a, and a and a listener. And I just, to me, it was when I came into his office, I felt really trusted. Mm-hmm. And it's not the first time; it was the first time in a long time, and it felt so different. And uh, you know, so I couldn't recommend him highly enough. And in fact, I had an interesting conversation. Maybe you'll appreciate this with someone. They said, "Oh, I don't." They had been to him. I was living in Princeton, kind of small town. So I had been to mm-hmm. him. And uh, yeah, he t- talks too much, and he he takes too long. Yeah, said, no, that's that's the genius of the guy. <laughs> like he's moving, he's moving at a different pace, and his talking, I realized too, was a way to make you comfortable to also share. Mm-hmm. This doesn't yeah. seem to be the trend. No, and it's I mean it's so much of it is systemic, like you say. It's like there's so much of a time pressure. Doctors are discouraged from spending more than fifteen to twenty minutes with patients. Um, and I say discouraged, but I mean overscheduled, really. And it's an enormous problem here, but it's a problem in certainly most of the Anglosphere. Like this isn't something that gets better in the U.S. is all a private system, of course, but in Canada where I grew up, it's a public entirely public system. They don't have a private system. They have this problem. I think. I mean, I interview people in the UK and Australia and New Zealand and kind of many of these issues, they travel across these these systems that all kind of have an overlapping history. And it's, I mean, it's certainly financial in nature, I think, but it's frustrating. (laughs) So could you share a couple of the examples of conversations you've had in the podcast that really have stuck with you over time? Mm Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been lucky to now interview um, 80 some people. I'm not quite at, oh my, you're almost at 400, which is incredible. Um, so I've interviewed about 80 people and I, I don't have a least favorite. So I've been really grateful that anybody has talked to me and opened up about really kind of personal details about their lives. Early on, some of the stories that I was most struck by before I really knew what was going on with my body were people were talking about, I think I talked to you, um, my friend Natasha, who maybe was episode three, I want to say, early on, and she talked about being chronically ill and mentally ill and starting to identify as disabled. And that was the first time that I had heard someone really even connect those things. So I was like, well, I know what disability is, but I kind of think it's a permanent state and it you need to be diagnosed and all of these, it has these sort of rigid boundaries, or I had assumptions about that. And so that really started to change my perspective. And another early conversation that I had, Kelly, Um, She was talking about doing a diet change to try to manage her symptoms, which is something that's pretty common because it's something you can do yourself. So a lot of people try it at one point or another. And she was saying that it had helped, but the energy cost and financial cost of making the change wasn't worth the amount of help that came out of it. And that also was like a really big paradigm shift for me because I had always gotten the impression that it was like, you should be trying to get better no matter what, no matter the cost, like getting better is the ideal. If you can get even a little bit of improvement for, you know, three hours of work a day, then everybody wants you to have that and you should want that for yourself. And so the idea that you could kind of even have a little bit of autonomy around how you make decisions about your body and how you prioritize your resources was really a shift for me at that time. Um, And then since So those were a couple of the early conversations that I had. But then since then, I've been really lucky to talk to a few people whose work I already respect and know about. And that's been really exciting for me, too. So I mentioned already Julie Raymeyer, who wrote Through the Shadowlands. And I got to interview her, which was incredible because her book had meant so much to me. And she wrote it while she was in remission, but she ended up going through another illness cycle that has been a little bit different. And so I talked to her kind of in the middle of that, and I've been able to track her story a little bit. Um, and I talked to someone named, uh, Alex Haggard, who does, they do a lot of research about kind of critical disability theory and trying to talk about models and incorporate invisible illness and the clinical gaze and medically invisible illness. So like 
diagnostic difficulties into their analysis and theory. And so that was another like three plus hour conversation because we were talking about their history. And then we were also kind of connecting it back to the patterns that we've become familiar with. So that one was meant a lot to me. And then one more that's coming out soon is I spoke to someone a couple of weeks ago. It'll probably come out in a couple of months um, named Jeff Wood. And he is someone who had Emmy and he was really sick. He had severe ME. And he is kind of the first person in the ME community who started looking at connective tissue disorders, which Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a connective tissue disorder, but he was not diagnosed with that. He was just diagnosed with ME. So he started looking at other communities and he found that he actually had a structural spinal problem that was causing all of his ME symptoms. And he ended up getting um, a cervical fusion and a tethered cord release. So two spinal surgeries. And they basically completely resolved all of his symptoms. And so that was, I mean, mean, it is untreatable. It doesn't have any treatment. And this is a whole other controversial thing, but getting to talk to him and actually it's kind of the same thing, getting to like, not just read the dry scientific accounting, but really like, what did that feel like? How did you know? What do you, Mm -hmm. how did you start to put this together? And what were you thinking before you kind of knew everything that you knew now? It just like, it always means a lot to me when I get to talk to people and have a more human conversation about kind of their more scientific or theoretical or whatever patient-based research. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Brianne Bennis today. Uh, She's the creator of the No End Insight podcast. So, Brianne, let's talk a little bit about COVID. Um, First question I want to ask you, um, since you've talked to a lot of people about this, and I think you have a landscape view of this, has COVID, let's say in North America, by your estimation, changed the way that people who don't suffer from chronic illness think about it? Has it created a greater space of empathy? I was trying to suggest this earlier. It's a, it's a theory I have, but I have no way to, to test it except to talk to people like you. What do you think? I mean, is there a sort of greater reservoir of empathy out there for people who might be suffering now that COVID's in our, in our daily lives? I think that's a really tough question because I think at the beginning... So at the beginning, a lot of people, especially, so the ME community in particular, a lot of people develop ME as a post-viral syndrome. And so as soon as there was news that there was a pandemic starting, there was just like a lot of chatter and a lot of awareness across the disability community, but especially in the ME community, about what would this mean? Because all of a sudden we knew there are going to be a lot more people developing post-viral illness. There's going to be, there will have to be more awareness about it. There might be more research. There might be more support available, like all of a sudden, a lot of different futures started to kind of open up, many of them terrifying and pretty scary, frankly. But I think there was like, there were a few subclasses of people who are already looking for that and having that conversation. And so on the one hand, I do, I sincerely do think that there being more awareness about chronic illness in the context of long COVID has made people who are paying attention to that, and that is an important caveat. So people who are aware of long COVID, who are reading the good reporting about long COVID, which is not all reporting about long COVID, 
But um, Ed Yong, for instance, has written some really great pieces in The Atlantic about kind of all of it. He does some really long form writing. Um, so I think people are becoming really more intimately familiar with that experience and that history if they're paying attention. Um, big F. And similarly, I think the Wall Street Journal had a piece about POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is um, dysautonomia, so autonomic nervous system dysfunction. Um, and that was a big deal because POTS is, it's existed for a long time, actually, and it has pretty high prevalence. And I guess it shows up in the historic record a lot after wars, which kind of makes yeah. sense because veterans were always the population that were kind of maybe had the most funded healthcare, I guess, yeah. uh, that we were paying the most attention to. But so there's been a lot of optimism about people learning about chronic illness that way. And I also think that more people know someone who was affected than ever before. So we don't really know the true prevalence of something like ME because it's, I mean, it's underdiagnosed. EDS is underdiagnosed. A lot of these conditions are underdiagnosed. Uh, but the way that it is now, there's all of a sudden like this event that has made it so that a lot more people know someone who has a chronic illness, who got a post-viral illness and all of that. But all of that being said, I know that a lot of people have had the interpersonal experience that because they're chronically ill, whether at this point from long COVID, because there are some people who became sick a year and a half ago, so they've been living with chronic illness a long time, mm -hmm. um, or a relatively long time, a long time for long COVID, mm -hmm. um, uh, who find that their families, if they have the kind of family that are kind of inclined to view pandemic measures as a limitation on their freedoms, that those people have, in fact, not developed any more empathy. And so in the way that this country is so politically divided over masks and vaccines and all of that, they are similarly divided over whether or not they think that it's their job to take care of people who are chronically ill. And I think we see in a lot of the reporting that from the beginning, from the very beginning, that whenever these number, the death numbers were shared, or whenever we hear about morbidity and mortality, they'll like put a little asterisk next to everybody who had a pre-existing condition, as if having a pre-existing condition meant that you were right. already mostly dead anyway, and it doesn't really matter, which is not the case. And so I kind of think there's like two things happening at once, which is that in our personal lives and through this one narrative, you can really see that we need to build compassion and we need to build support and we need to do this and take this seriously. And on the other side, there's such resistance still to taking anything about the pandemic seriously. And that bleeds over because there were already kind of so many stigmatized attitudes about chronic illness and especially poorly understood illness in general. That makes sense. It does. There's so much in what you're saying there. I just want to, um, you use the phrase ME, and I want to just, this is myalgic encephalomyelitis, right? This is chronic fatigue yes. syndrome. And EDS yes. is, um, is what you think. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Okay. And so people can can check those. I would just say, Google those for health information. I can't believe I just said that. But anyway, you can yeah. get, you know where to get good health information. So read up on on those. And you give a disclaimer on your podcast that it's not you're not right. It's not uh, advice. Providing medical advice, right? So, um, but something you just said really struck with me. Struck me, which is in the early days, in the first days of sort of COVID denial, which I was, I was poised for. I think many of us were like, okay, this is coming. This is going to come, and it came pretty early. It came around the death statistics, in which people there was a discourse that people said, no, this is not what somebody died from, right. That medical, that there was a, and the way the conspiracy frames this is there's a conspiracy out there of medical professionals who are in the pocket of 
whoever. And so they're, they have pressure to report this as something that it's not. Mm -hmm. But, and so aside from that, what that taught me was there's just a lot of mistrust in the system flowing in mm -hmm. lots of different directions. And, mm -hmm. and then, and you brought up the, the issue of a sort of a, a withering empathy, or maybe some people started with none or they had some, and then it withers over time because they're like, can we stop talking about this now? Can we just move on? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So chronic illness sufferers are already aware of both of those discourses, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like, one of the things that has been so frustrating for so many people, especially people who are chronically ill, is that a lot of the attitudes that they had seen before, maybe in the media, maybe in their personal lives around how I think like here in the States, our culture especially has a really has put a lot of faith in the just world fallacy. You know, it's like a part of your being able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps is that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And so from the very beginning, a lot of a lot of the narratives we're also focused on if when we were telling the story of someone who had died, let's also talk about everything they did wrong that kind of made them earn it, you know, and it's really hard to split the hairs on this because I'm, I, I wear a mask. I think everyone should be wearing masks in public places. It's not about not taking precautions, but like they were, you know, you could just tell that they were trying to find a reason that this person died. And those reasons aren't, that it doesn't work that way. And I think people with chronic illness kind of already knew this, that anyone can get sick at any time and it's not fair. It's difficult, but it is just the way that it is. And that's something that we have to kind of learn to make peace with and also constantly learn to fend off the assumptions about other people who think that you must have done something wrong if you became sick and you stayed sick. If you didn't manage to get better, it's because you didn't do enough or you didn't try hard enough or you deserved it. And that that interpersonal conversation that we were already kind of all having all of a sudden was showing up in the national media in the way that COVID was discussed and that the mortality rates were discussed. Um, so that was really difficult. And yeah, similarly, I mean, I, I think people, people with chronic illness have a lot of trust issues with the medical system. And again, like I'm in the US, I know a lot about the US and Canada systems. I know a little bit about what's going on in the UK, a little bit about some European systems, a little bit about Australia, mm -hmm. just because of the stories that I hear. Um, but you can just tell that it's medicine is trying very hard. <laughs> but what we aren't able to see yet, which like something like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a connective tissue disorder. It's still a clinical diagnosis in a lot of cases. There are some genetic tests for some of the types, the subtypes, but it it's a clinically, you need a doctor who is able to make that clinical diagnosis. And the reality is that a lot of doctors not only are not able to make that diagnosis, but they don't even know that they could be. So if you take the information to them and you ask them about it, they'll just be like, nope, can't help you. This isn't you. You're fine. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there, there are probably, again, like an undercounted number of people who have already been having these small breaches of trust with the medical system as they're not able to get help for whatever they're navigating. I wonder if you feel some ambivalence there, and I'll, I'll explain my own. You know, I'm a, a person who's trained in the history of science and technology, and so our job is to sort of be critical of science. Mm -hmm. And we've a lot of us have talked throughout this time in the pandemic and said, you know, that's our job. But at the end of the day, it's like we don't. We're like, wait, this too far. That you've gone too far when you reach the point where you know anybody with a podcast or anybody who can get on Fox News can pillory any scientist or any physician and say, see, they're in the pocket of big pharma. 
So there, I guess what I'm describing is a system in which, and I, if I think I hear you right, which is we need a lot more critique. We need a lot more, you know, and maybe changes in training in the way physicians think about or can deal with chronic illness sufferers. But that doesn't mean we're throwing out the whole medical system and everybody's taking, right. um, you know, horse paste. Yeah. I, I just don't know. I mean, right. maybe this American no. society, it's one or zero, but there's a lot of gray in there and I'm worried that we're losing that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think even this, this became even more clear with vaccines, but even before vaccines, I think a lot of people who are chronically ill, especially felt like they were kind of like through, through the looking glass because they're paying They're on the one hand, have a lot of distrust in the CDC because as it pertains to chronic illness, there have been a lot of political controversies. I mean, Lyme is a great example um, ME is another great example where the diagnostic criteria have really shifted a lot, where there's been a lot of kind of debate among practitioners and among in, like large systemic problems about how are we actually going to recognize this condition? Are we going to treat it? What are we going to make the recommendations for? And a lot of patients are really familiar with that. So on the one hand, they did have a lot of distrust even for the CDC. But on the other hand, when the pandemic began and we're watching Fauci make recommendations about masking and distancing and all this stuff, like all of the people that don't love the CDC for what it's done to ME are incredibly conservative when it comes to preventing the spread of a virus because they know firsthand that even if the mechanism isn't totally understood, getting a viral infection when you're chronically ill puts you at an incredibly high rate of morbidity, even if you're not, even if you do okay with the original infection, even if you don't need to go to the hospital, just the odds of long-term complication are so much higher. And we already know that like anecdotally within our communities. So we want to follow the most conservative advice that science sure. have to offer in this case. And I think that's been true and even more complicated as it relates to the vaccines, because there are so many people with chronic illness who, because they have chronic illness, are dealing with different side effect profiles or different effectiveness profile, efficacy profiles. Um, but their distrust of, say, the pharmaceutical industry for not having done I mean, in the case of COVID, speed was the obstacle, but we already know this about like say the flu vaccine is that we don't actually know how it impacts like all of these different subpopulations. We don't know who has the highest or lowest risk of side effects. We don't know who has the like most and least effective response to it. And it would be really helpful if we did, but the frustration about that and critique around kind of how it's happening is not the same as the critique that's coming from people who are like, they're going to put microchips in our blood or kind of whatever it is. Like right. there is the experience of systemic <laughs> failure and trying to find the things that work within just something that's really big and history. I mean, medicine isn't complete. I think like we know that. I think most scientists know that. I think, but I think a lot of kind of lay people who have never had any in interaction or any major interaction with the medical system maybe don't realize that. I mean, it strikes that's me. also a lot. A lot of yeah. yeah, no, I mean this is this is a really important discussion because it strikes me you're you're describing uh, you know chronic illness sufferers who who um, they want to they need to critique the system their life's on the line I mean they have to raise right. their their voices and it takes a lot of courage and it's incredibly exhausting um, but they're doing that because they have there's that's done in good faith it's done mm -hmm. around a sort of contract social contract of health concept. It, it, they're not selling some other magical mineral cure or some bleach supplement. I mean, this is these are right. done for very different reasons, and and you know, it's it's those who are coming with conspiracies, either doing it for political gain or for financial gain. They just not they're not engaged right. in that.
at all. And they end up hurting us too. It's like they they reduce trust in the medical system in general, but they also make all public spaces less safe at this time. It's like people who are chronically ill, as reopening plans started showing up kind of immediately in the summer of 2020, people who are chronically ill, if somebody else is maskless, all of a sudden it's not safe, even if I have a mask on because my risk is so much higher. So people have been really made less safe by this conspiracy theory level of distrust, which is just operating differently. I think good faith is a really great way to put it, is that people, for the most part, who are chronically ill and have had so many engagements, they're like, they like the pharmaceuticals that they have that work for them. They wish they had better drugs that work. They wish they had better treatment options. Like they want to keep engaging the system and they just want to be treated with like respect and dignity um, rather than people who just don't, like I think just want to see the whole system fall for the sake of it or for whatever reason. There's another couple of issues I wanted to get to because I know you've been tracking like just, and even in your own experience talking about last year, of people who have um, chronic illness, um, what what did they have to deal with in terms of getting medical attention, particularly during the worst of the pandemic? Were they able to get, what What are you hearing? Were they able to get in? Did they have to delay or postpone the kind of treatments that they're used to receiving? And then I'm also interested in sort of the protocols that had to be adopted. I, you know, I've talked to um, people who are involved in labor and delivery and work in ICUs. And I mean, pretty much everything about how they, they kept working, but pretty much everything about what they did had to be modified in one way or another. What was the impact of, of that on your community? Mm-hmm. It was very high. So, excuse me, early on, I think at the in the spring of 2020, of course, there were some places where the systems were completely overwhelmed and they were trying to deal with as elevated COVID cases. And I think that must have been a really impossible situation for healthcare workers. And one of the impacts was that I think we've seen, there's been news coverage about some of this, but a lot of, quote, voluntary procedures were just canceled. A lot of other intro appointments were canceled. A lot of people had to have their patient loads reduced. So many people who say were undiagnosed were not able to pursue diagnostic care at all because they couldn't get in with specialists. People who had some surgical procedures scheduled, some of those were canceled or have been rescheduled multiple times. So on the one hand, care has been really delayed. And I also think like, there's probably there's probably some more churn in the in healthcare in general. People are leaving, so there are fewer people working, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, the on the one hand, that was happening is that a lot of essential care was being canceled. And then on the other hand, early on, when kind of the world moved online, is that telehealth became more widely available, at least initially. Um, and I think most states at the beginning required insurers to pay for telehealth, which they had not done before. And so kind of simultaneously at the same time that a lot of people were losing care or people were losing their maintenance care if you needed to see a massage therapist or someone kind of regularly you would just stop going um but on the other hand people were able to in some cases access care that they could never have accessed before because the transportation would have been too difficult or kind of logistical problems so people did have better access to telehealth at the beginning Um, And then the third thing that was happening was people were certainly worried about their exposure risks. And so I think people have started making really different decisions about when to pursue care, what they want to pursue care for, how. I don't really think this is a good thing. I think people, you know, people don't go to the ER if they're having a maybe emergency where they might have gone to urgent care before because they just the risk of exposure feels higher than the risk of just letting whatever is happening play out. So people are kind of starting to make those decisions at home in a way that especially in the US, many people were already making for financial reasons, but now they're also making them for exposure reasons. 
Um, okay, so those are kind of the, I think, the three big things from the beginning. And then one thing that's changed here over the last year is that a lot of that telehealth access has been rolled back. Mm-hmm. So they, I think there was maybe an emergency authorization that was changed. So now, now doctors can't see patients from other states, which sounds like it makes sense. But actually, anybody that's near a state line probably already has. Like, for example, I like I said, I live near the Vermont border. So plenty of right. people from Vermont come to where I go for primary care. And that's never been a problem because they just go there. But they can't do telehealth because Massachusetts doctor can't have a telehealth appointment with someone in Vermont anymore because it's they're not licensed to do it, but they are if they come here. So that's been something that like a lot of people have felt really keenly is that, you know, the exposure risk isn't gone. It's still not necessarily very safe, especially in some regions to go to a place where all the sick people are, but you no longer have this alternative option or it's no longer covered or whatever. So that has been kind of changing things. And really, want, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, even though the many of the surges have come down, a lot of people are still experiencing delayed care. And I think that has to do with like labor shortage stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and in some cases must be multiply delayed care because every time a surge comes on and, and I think with Delta, you know, the whole mood of the country, uh, you know, in the United States and by extension, countries that have to deal with the United States last spring began to shift. And I mm-hmm. think people started rescheduling things. And I'm right. assuming at that point, a lot of people with chronic illness began to have some hope they could get back to the care they needed. And then by mm-hmm. July, that had vaporized. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I would say that in the spring, in this past spring, kind of as the vaccines were starting to be rolled out, and I think a lot of people with chronic illness did have more hesitancy mm-hmm. than some of the general population in terms of their expectations for what sure. kind of a difference the vaccine would make, just because... They had already had many experiences of like, they tried to send people back to school even before that was happening. They tried to send people back to work. Like it was so obvious that we keep kind of jumping the gun on getting, getting back to normal and that that just keeps causing more surges. And so, but I do think in the summer, especially people were like, this is the time I'm going to go try to do it. And then the summer surge really, as you say, it's like this knock on effect where it kind of keeps happening and keeps getting more and more delayed. But just on this telehealth issue, and then by extension, you know, universities and workplaces, you know, shifting to remote. That was interesting. You talked about your experience last year as one where you were you know, experiencing lockdown of, of your own. Um, but then there are so many things available that had never been available. Every major orchestra and sympathy and, and, and theater and even, uh, you know, comedians. I mean, every form of the arts trying to bring them, the, themselves online and then telehealth and various other things yeah. like this. Um, but I have a question. I don't even know if we can resolve this, but I wanted to ask you about it. That, and so now there's a discourse of getting back to normal, and and those venues are going back to to you know January 2020 life. Is it just that the pandemic didn't last? That this period didn't last long enough to allow some of those things to become more sort of structural? Let's take telehealth for example. That had it just been a somehow longer, then the case could have been made more effectively that, no, this is like something we should offer people all the time. And like remote education, like this is something we need to have for people, all the, not everyone, but we, this needs to be a channel of how we do our work. Or is there something else at play there that just people 
the majority of people cannot give up their back to normal addiction. And, and again, I, I mean, it's an impossible question to ask you, but it's right. been on my mind so much as to why the shift back to normal has been so abrupt and then so obviously short-sighted in, in line with the things that you're talking about that chronic illness sufferers yeah. need. Yeah, it's been very frustrating. So I think at the very beginning, so in the spring of 2020, there was so much conversation, again, in the disability community, in addition to talking about the expectations around post-viral illness, um, people in disability community were talking about this remote kind of change, this overhaul, because they so many people had been asking for it already for years. So a lot of people had been asking for remote work and remote learning as an as a disability accommodation because they knew that they could work or learn better when they were at home where they could take care of their bodies. Um, and a lot of people had had the experience of being denied remote work or school kind of more than once. Um, and they were really frustrated about that. And so initially in the first in the spring of 2020, when it looked like we were really going to start making the transition, people were simultaneously excited that it was happening and also frustrated that it hadn't happened sooner. Um, and I would say wary, like they, already there was a lot of wariness that it, it could be taken away at any moment because it was like, well, when we needed it, it was not a priority. And all of a sudden everybody needs it. And it happened like that. It happened so quickly. The infrastructure was already there. Although I know a lot of things kind of evolved very quickly tech wise. Um, but I think I, it kind of is my suspicion on the work and school front is that we do, we know how to kind of work. We know how to take our computers home and work on our computer at home instead of at work. And we know how to use Zoom. But a lot of the other stuff, like, say, um, institutional knowledge or in the case of schools, it's like networking and socialization. I think there are a lot of things that we're used to happening sort of unofficially. It's like the shadow curriculum or the shadow job description. Um, and there was a real resistance to actually trying to name those things and replicate replicate those things in online spaces. So I think there was a real resistance to training management and to if this is something that we're going to do, what do we actually need to invest in to build a kind of robust office culture that is also remote? And there are plenty of companies that were already doing this. There's models for it. It's like it's it's possible. But I think a lot of people were kind of like, it's an emergency, we have to do this, but we don't prefer it. And so we're going to keep talking about how we don't prefer it so that we have the option to just cut it off and never invest the resources into building a more robust system. That's definitely the impression that I get just based on how much resistance there was to offering remote options before and how quickly they've tried to roll them back. And it's like, it's painful to watch the way the companies are, I mean, the, the press push, all of this stuff where they're like, yeah. everybody needs to be in the office. It's our culture. We need it. Like, but everyone's just doing Zoom calls between their offices. Like, this feels like it's more about control than it's about safety. Uh, I, this is sort of in the disaster studies and research space that I operate in. You know, there's this always a lively discussion about whether or not disasters, you know, remake the world or do they... Um, provide a, a momentary break, but ultimately they reinforce continuities. And obviously, that's mm -hmm. it's not it's not binary. But I I do think there's there's been a lot of sort of feeling that yeah, the pandemic was going to around healthcare, for example, this is going to finally show people that we need universal healthcare, that we need um, that disability is a real thing that you know people experience temporary disability, and that's a basis of political. I mean, the many many things. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not a pessimist by nature, but what you're describing is is something that leads me to think we're in a we're we are now experiencing the continuity re, reforming. Yeah, and it, it definitely feels like there's a very strong push for that. I still yeah. feel a lot of uncertainty over like where we'll be in five years or something because I do think that. I mean, something that's outside of my area of expertise that I'm really curious about right now is, especially here in the U.S., there's a lot of talk about a labor shortage, which Mm -hmm. is a fabricated way to describe it, but that's not the point. But like, I think we're still seeing the beginning of more change, which is going to be really interesting. And part of the reason is that so many people have become disabled. So, so many people have developed long COVID and left the workforce on top of the other reasons that people have left the workforce on on top of how many people that we've lost. Um, And so I think like, I have, yeah, I don't know where to put myself on the optimism, pessimism kind of spectrum, but I have a lot of curiosity about where things will go over the next few years, because I think we still haven't really reckoned with what the morbidity rate will have done. And I think a lot of people probably who are dealing with long COVID haven't, I know from having interviewed so many people with chronic illness who became chronically ill before this, that it takes a long time from your first inciting moment. Um, It's like people get really sick and then if they're able to rest, they often kind of achieve a level of remission and a new baseline that they then kind of build a life with Um, or they don't have support and they keep trying to work through it or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of different things that can happen, but I think that not enough time has passed for us to even really understand what the population level impact is of this many people getting that sick. And I think on an individual level, a lot of people probably have not really contextualized the illness that they're dealing with because they're still taking care of themselves. They're not kind of like learning about, I mean, not lots of people are, but a lot of people have not had an opportunity to learn about the cultural history of disability and a post-viral illness and all of that stuff that might kind of change the way that they engage the world. Um, So I have a lot of curiosity still about what, what will happen because of the population shifts because of the disaster, even as I really Mm. see very heavy (laughs) pushes to, return to whatever life was like before. I just, I don't know. I, I'm i very curious about that too, I guess, as much as no disasters would be preferred if not possible. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're almost up on time, but that that's that last bit you said there. I wanted to just get your, get a little deeper sense of your feeling about, you know, long COVID. It, it, watching it from my perspective and talking to people who are activists in long COVID, mm-hmm. um, they seem to be forming quite quickly. I mean, in terms mm-hmm. of organiz- their organizational talent, and they seem to be drawing deeply from the lessons of disability activists, chronic mm-hmm. illness sufferers, and activists. I, I wonder how you see it, uh, almost maybe at a at a health political level. What what are you seeing in terms of their of these communities' ability to come together to interface with other disability communities? I mean, the hope is that you know, this is one more uh, basis for activism and therefore more people in the fight and therefore a greater chance for systemic change. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has been really incredible because even though, even with post-viral illness, so ME, there's like a long history of ME outbreaks, but they've all been significantly smaller than this. So even if patients were kind of banding together and all able to identify each other, which is not guaranteed, um, there, I mean, there's a long history of ME activism. I don't want to undermine anything that anyone has ever done, but the scale of it has always been necessarily different. And so I think there, I have a lot of 
excitement for all of these people who have been able to find each other so quickly because they got sick during an event when it was possible to identify other people that you had so much in common with. I know that usually it takes people so much longer to find peers because they don't know what they have. They don't know what's going on. They don't have any context for it. Um, And so I think that's really accelerated people's ability to connect with each other, plus the internet, obviously. And it's incredible what so many of these long COVID patient groups have been doing in terms of advocating for themselves and connecting each other with research and trying to like actually improve the care that they get and advocate politically because it's, I mean, I, I think I say this on Twitter all the time because it's really frustrating for me. But the one thing that the history of ME teaches us is that there's no guarantee that this illness will ever even be taken seriously. Like it is not a given that they will be offered anything but graded exercise therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, which are both like well-documented inappropriate interventions for this kind of illness. But they're cheap. So they're recommended the most. And so I think on the one hand, there's like, I mean, I have a really big fear that what the funding that is available will be funneled into these kind of more more affordable treatments that are known to be ineffective. Um, But I have a lot of optimism because of this patient advocacy that those patients know that they've learned that from the ME community. They know they need to be fighting for something different. They know not to waste their time on it. It is not, it's not worth it. Um, And so that has been really, I mean, kind of incredible to see. And then there's, it's, it's been complicated, I think, in the community because at the beginning, and there's been, I, again, not a lot and not all good, but there's been press around long COVID and long COVID advocacy and patients. Um, and some of it is casting doubt on whether or not it's real and whether or not people are just stressed or malingering, um, which is a long story in chronic illness. That's what people are used to. But as they've gotten more press and more attention and a little bit more funding, there is certainly like a resentment in some corners of the community who are scared that they'll be almost left behind. And I, I don't think this will happen, but I understand initially people had so much hope that funding would go to long COVID that they would actually get somewhere and that other Mm. people would be excluded from whatever treatments were discovered or made available. Um, So I think there's a little bit of like, it's strange to have been living in this space before the pandemic when chronic illness was such an afterthought for people and there was not a lot of funding and there was very little awareness to kind of watch it happen all of a sudden and to watch some really bad coverage that is like, this has never happened before. We don't know what we're seeing. And then a couple, not many, but like a few long COVID advocates who had not taken the time to learn the history would sometimes like reinforce that narrative just because again, they haven't had time to get to know the community and to learn about the history. Hmm. And so I think there's like a little bit of a rockiness because it's so unusual for such a large cohort to become Mm. a part of a community all at once. But it's been incredible to watch people kind of find each other and come together and support each other as much as they're able to while they're all still very, very sick for the most part. I assume this is something you're going to be tracking going forward on on your podcast, No End in Sight. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I... Now I'm trying to think if I've actually talked to, I think a few people, I've interviewed people who are already sick who also had COVID. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I have actually interviewed anybody yet who thought of themselves as healthy before they got COVID. And I just say that because so many people who develop post-viral illness kind of will realize that they actually had a lot of early warning signs beforehand. But I'll be looking, uh, t- terms like looking forward to in these days sound weird, <laughs> discordant, but I'll be looking forward I to understand. you to you talking to them. I think those are conversations that we need. I, I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And tomorrow I'm going to be talking to the 
magnificent Kim Tallbear. Please join me for that discussion. She's a scholar of indigeneity, indigenous peoples, technoscience, and the environment. So please join me for that. And I want to thank my guest today, Brianne Venice, the creator of the No End Insight podcast. And um, Brianne, I should have asked you at the beginning, how do people find the podcast? Uh, is at noendinsight.co, and it should be anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Spotify. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, great conversation. Thank you, Brianne. Thanks for all the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.